Brought to you are some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Elixir London is a one-day conference on the 17th of August that encourages inclusion and diversity within the Elixir programming community. Jose Valim, the creator of Elixir, is confirmed to keynote, and the full schedule can be found online. For more information and to register, visit www.elixir.london. Compose Melbourne is back. Compose Melbourne, the sibling conference to the New York-based Compose Conference, is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 28th and 29th of August at RMIT Melbourne, Australia, with presentations on August 28th and an unconference on the 29th. The keynote is by Andrew Sorensen, titled Sound Synthesis in the Computational Crucible. For more information and to register, visit www.composeconference.org slash 2017-melbourne. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opened June 8th, and they do still have tickets available, I've heard, so make sure to visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated as tickets tend to go fast. PWLConf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strangeloop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing network systems to game engines. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, helping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or a recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org. ElmConf is returning to St. Louis on September 28th for a day of learning, speaking, and connecting with the Elm language community. ElmConf will once again be co-locating with Strange Loop, and the conference will run on Strange Loop's pre-conference day. For tickets and more information, visit www.elm-conf.us. OpenF Sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, OpenF Sharp features two days of F Sharp talks and workshops with world class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F Sharp community and some of its key contributors while learning about the latest developments in the F Sharp ecosystem. For more information and to register, visit openfsharp.org. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington, with one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are CS professors Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference, Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Burt, inventor of Minicanon. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.racket-ling.org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. Cudmish will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margot Seltzer are already confirmed. Speakers have been announced and early bird ticket sales have started. For more details and to register, visit www.cudmish.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference for the functional programming community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single-track talks on Thursday and Friday, and an all-day open space unconference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.mooncoff.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you're to leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Justin Schneck. Justin, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? 
Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I started my career early on playing music. I went to school for performance for drums, and I sort of found this love of working with computers through recording and engineering. So after I realized that as a drummer, I wouldn't really be able to get a lot of work there, it's kind of like playing the, the gamble uh, that I, I worked my way in recording engineering. And I did that for quite some time. I worked on some video post-production for some local movies back in my area after attending school in Los Angeles. I'm from Pennsylvania. And so I uh, worked in a studio in Pennsylvania for a while. We did video post for movies, and then that sort of naturally led into this inspiring love affair of the way that hardware and software work together. Because working for a studio, you kind of have to have that depth of knowledge on how to be able to take sound represented as electronic signals and causing them to flow in the way that you want to be able to change it or like make it sound differently. So I started becoming a programmer. I got really interested in that. I, I worked originally in .NET. I uh, graduated to working on a lot of applications in iOS for a marketing company. I did iPhone development for a while. And then following that, I found myself on the crux of trying to be able to transition a chat company, my last company I was with, over to a new stack. And at that point, we were trying to be able to figure out what's the best out there for us to move on to. And when putting to the test Ruby and and Socket.io and all of the different architectures, we uh, landed on really putting Elixir and Phoenix in motion at our organization. This was like pre-1.0 time too. So that's where we started getting involved in that community. So you went from .NET, iOS, looking at Ruby and Socket.io, you said, what put Elixir on the radar? Was that because you were familiar with Ruby and heard about Jose and started to see what he was up to? What was the thing that put Elixir on the radar? and what was that experience getting into Elixir, especially in the early days? Yeah, so at the same time that we were trying to decide where to move this architecture for a chat software app over to, I was also really still interested in electrical engineering and working with hardware. So I wanted to remote start my motorcycle from my phone. <laughs> so I decided I would build some devices using Arduinos, and we can get into more about what those are later on. But I realized that the experience itself was just too hard, and I found myself, before this discovery of Elixir, kind of writing the concepts, the core fundamental concepts of OTP and Erlang in Ruby. It was a maddening exercise. And then when we found Elixir, I found that a lot of the concepts that I was trying to be able to put in were OTP. And, and so I scrapped all of that false start, in a sense. And it was great because I just got on board with the idea of what was happening with this community. It was extremely fast growing. It had some really smart people behind it. And I was truly fascinated by the supervision architecture, the way that you could do distribution with it as sort of a, a helpful mechanism to what is the Erlang VM and also how it was immutable. The immutability was captivating at that time because it really naturally helped design better code. It sort of like honed me into a better practices in my own code writing. It was fun getting in at the early stages. The hardest part actually was once I decided that this was the language for me and that I felt at home, both the work that I was doing in Embedded and the work that we're doing with Life Help Now with the chat software was coming into alignment. And it was really great because what I was writing in either realm was benefiting the other. And at the same time, this is the maddening part, but at the same time that I was learning Elixir and through Elixir learning Erlang, I was learning all about Microsoft SQL Server database adapters and the pain that lied within. Um, the requirement for our chat software company was that we could communicate with SQL Server. And so in the early stages, I uh, decided that I would take it upon myself to write a native TDS driver to interface Elixir with Microsoft SQL Server through Ecto. So we wrote that, we got it working, we put it out there and used it with our Phoenix application that we were starting to be able to move things over to and got that working in production. That was a, sort of the initial interesting involvement that I had in the community was that adapter. Unfortunately, since then, it, I haven't had opportunities, I should say, to keep up with it. I didn't have much of a love following that for the things that I've seen under the hood. You, you can't unsee those kind of things. So I moved on from there and I started getting obsessed with the connectivity and channels for Phoenix. 
And from there, Chris and I worked together to be able to try to hit the two million channels mark. I remember that time working with him and Gary. I wasn't satisfied on certain low benchmarks because I imagined Internet of Things connectivity, like sensors and things. We should have two million channels. And I really wanted fast delivery times too. So that was a fun challenge. We ended up, as you've seen from other interviews and from talks that Gary and Chris have given, we've definitely come out successful in the end with with that one. And real quick, just flashing back, if you're doing this microcontroller devices stuff to start doing some automation, putting stuff in and around your home, like starting your motorcycle from your phone, and then you go to Elixir and you start to see the OTP actor model supervisor stuff, what part was setting that stage for when you recognize it in Elixir to be able to understand that says, oh, this is what I've been trying to implement on my own and this solves it. So how did that foundation get set for even thinking about the actor model in the small Internet of Things devices kind of stuff than the hardware that you were playing with? There were really two forces at play in this case. The first one is what sort of drove me towards looking for a better way to do things and inevitably drove me towards the actor model and seeing it, which is that Arduinos are great. They're a lot of fun. There's a huge community, and they can be great for getting you started, which they were for me. But quickly you find yourself in a situation where you want to be able to have enhanced connectivity. You just want to be able to do some basic networking, or you want to be able to take some results that you've captured, and you want to send them to some server so that you can view them from some other device. And that limitation is, it's funny because in this day and age, like we sort of take that capability as far as software developers for granted. But it sort of means in this realm that you have to write a lot of your own really low level stuff. You have to have understandings of TCP and you can't really get away with using higher level languages. And so once I hit that wall, I knew I needed to be able to, the only way to enhance my systems was to bring in another outside entity that I could use to be able to sort of bridge the gap of communication. Now I have all these captured results. Like, for example, with the motorcycle, I have a accelerometer that I wanted to capture the lean angles of the motorcycle. And it's like, great, now you have that data and you want to be able to like present it on some beautiful device you own, but you need to get it out of that tiny little microcontroller. And the easiest way to be able to do that is to just make it so that it has some sort of gateway device that you can program in a higher level abilities. In early stages, that was recognized the Raspberry Pi was going to provide that sort of functionality. I remember buying the first Pi and just being totally excited about what I could do with it, but having just no idea at that point even how to get started. So once we finally learned Linux <laughs> on the Raspberry Pi and Raspbian, and knowing you can boot into this higher level language, you basically have this computer we can program it in a higher level. We can use whatever languages we want. We can use Ruby or Elixir or Erlang or Python or all kinds of stuff. Essentially, just a tiny little single board on like computer, a full computer. The reason that Erlang and Elixir was so attractive to run on that device is because of the actor model in a way. Like Once I took a step back, and realize that you have to have this outside influence to be able to get the data out of that microcontroller, you start to see the fact that your hardware systems are starting to sort of represent real-life scenarios where you might have this other processor that you want to be able to communicate with. And in the sense of the actor model, you just send messages back and forth, you get results delivered. It's a very stable model for distributed computing. And when you look at the landscape of the system that you're now being forced to build, it looks like a distributed computing system. You have multiple processors and they're working together to be able to report results. So that was sort of the initial interest and intrigue that led to both discoveries sort of in, at the same time, you know. And I fall in a little bit with you on some of that stuff, some of it before some of it later, like the Raspberry Pi, I remember seeing this, this is awesome. Getting a B first version and being like, I'm not sure what to do with this. It's neat, but yeah, I, there's ideas and I don't really know. Eventually did a traffic signal at work that hooked up to Jenkins, played with some stuff with Erlang and Elixir on it because, hey, 
let's see what a small computer like this can do with the power of these two cores or whatever on the pies as they've evolved. Still kind of, okay, turn some pins on for LEDs and got a nice little demo for a user group that says, let's turn a bunch of LEDs on and just do concurrency. Because you know what? This would be horrible if I had to do a bunch of random flashing LEDs because I have 10 LEDs at the same time, each randomly on and off for a second and have that pattern. So each one has their pattern. (laughs) Erlang Elixir makes that beautiful working with Ale. But at the same time, I've heard about the Nurse Project, which you're involved with. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on was to talk about how we fit in some of these nice functional languages, where they fit in with this hardware, where they're doing this. I'm at the Arduino side now, just recently, and being like, uh, C-style stuff. I wish I had a better language to do some of this stuff in. So you get this, you go through all the stuff with Phoenix and channels and the database adapters. You've got this hardware background. You start to fine nerves, and now you're actually one of the core contributors on it. So let's work into that first experience with nerves and set the stage for what nerves is and where it falls. As opposed to just, we can run any of these languages on the Pi or whatever. So I guess let's just start with, you did this Phoenix stuff. You got up to 2 million users with channels. You're like, I'm not done there. I've got this Arduino stuff. And maybe we'll recap Arduinos and Pi's a little bit in there. But how did you get introduced to Nerves? And what was that evolution to bring you full on into Nerves? And did you see it right away? Or was this something that took a little bit of selling? So at the time, I was working on that motorcycle project. I started a company called Metasphere. We were trying to be able to, like I said, do things in Ruby, basically redesigning OTP in Ruby when we found Elixir. And so the concept was there. Let's make something that we can deploy that's easy to be able to connect low-level devices to like phones and, and the internet. And so with that company, Metasphere, once we discovered Elixir, we started interacting with a bunch of other people. I found Frank Hunleth online, and I noticed he was doing something called Nerves. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. It's all Erlang. It's all shell script-wise. And I, so I tried it out. I, I got it up and running eventually after watching some videos. And then I found that there was some other people out there that were involved in it, people that were shipping products. So Garth Hitchens from Rose Point, he was one of the people that was like pretty much the active one on like the Nerves board at the time. And it turns out because he was actually shipping products, he was building a marine gateway device for it that ran using the system. And so I reached out to Frank and I was like, hey, you are the guy that I need to talk to. Like, I got these same ideas. We got to sync up. So I sent this email and I was like, really, like, I was super excited to be able to hear back from him. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you should talk to this guy, Garth. And I'm like, all right. So this was about two years ago or so or more, I think about two years ago. So in the summer, then I was heading to Vancouver to be able to give a talk on the work that I did on the TDS adapter. And he's like, yeah, I'm in Seattle while you're in Vancouver. Just, you know, get on a bus and come down to Seattle. I'm like, sure. So I ended up going down, meeting up with him at the offices of Rose Point, And we had lunch. We basically geeked out for a whole long time about like embedded systems and building devices and why it's so hard and what they're up to. And the things that really made sense to them in the system that they were using, which was NURBS. And at the time, NURBS was, like I said, it was just a group of shell scripts. It's basically something you'd source in your environment. It was Linux only, but it was really attractive on what it could provide. So we all sort of decided that we wanted to team up together and really push things forward. And at that point, then I was like, I was sold to get on board. I wanted to to make it so that nerves wasn't this thing that you just sort of source through the shell with your Erlang environment. I wanted it to integrate with Mix so that the way that I produced applications was just by directly interfacing with the tools that I was already used to using inside of Elixir. So after that first meeting, between then, which was like the middle of that year, I think that was like, uh, what, 2015 or so, and then into 2016, we worked towards developing that mix integration piece, which is now the main repo that's up there. And during that same time, too, we wanted to be able to offer better support from more platforms. As we all know, there's multiple Raspberry Pis now these days. And there's also a bunch of other cool, fun stuff out there to be able to tinker with as far as single board computers or little devices are concerned. And so that's sort of the way that we all got working together and working on the same sort of goal. And then that sort of transition leads into, well, yeah, now I can use this thing called Nerves to deploy to these Raspberry Pis, right? But why can't I just run a Raspberry Pi? 
And that's it's a great question. Everybody sort of like asks that question to begin with. And the reasonable response is you're perfectly welcome to just fire up a Raspberry Pi and download Erlang and Elixir onto it and, and just fire it up and start tinkering and getting it running. Nervous is a, it's got a couple different tricks underneath it. On one hand, we provide a group of libraries that are flexible enough for people to be able to use if they were to just boot up in Raspbian. There's no reason that you couldn't use these helper libraries inside of like a full Raspbian build or even on a Linux desktop machine. For example, Elixir Ale, if you wanted to just fire up Raspberry and, and play with some of the pins or maybe some of the protocols and just use Elixir Ale inside of that, that's, that's perfectly acceptable. So NERS has this series of frameworks that we provide as helper libraries to be able to do low-level things with our hardware on Linux. But it's also this mechanism for building deployment targets. And the interesting part from that is there's always problems that we individually face that need to be addressed. And everybody's problems might be different from everybody else's. And so the real question to say, like, is NERVS as a deployment good for you is what kind of problem you're looking to solve. Like, if you just want to tinker around, then fire up Raspbian and play around in Raspbian. The reason that people are interested in using the deployment mechanism of NERVS for like production images is because NERVS is sort of like this way to be able to build recipes. Raspbian weighs like 800 megs or more, and it's a multi-user operating system, and it's got a GUI, and it's got volatility, and it's mutable. It's got mutable state, and there's package managers, and there's like stuff that can update things. And like it's got to be online in a certain way, and, and it's a full OS. And all of that just gets in the way sometimes when you're looking to deploy a production product. So NERVS as a recipe builder, it builds these really lean opt-in systems. And leveraging build root underneath, we're capable of taking these configurations and outputting bootable Linux systems that boot Linux and then directly boot the Erlang VM, so your application is sort of like program zero in a way, running inside of Erlang. And then that way you are left with this system that's very lightweight. It contains only what's necessary to run your code. It doesn't have drivers for displays that are not going to ever be anticipated to be connected or network interfaces that are never going to show up. And because of that, it weighs a fraction of the size, like our default NERV systems that you can try out today for like Raspberry Pi pretty much create an output of like 20 megs. And that's the full Linux system and everything and your application, blah, blah, blah. I mean, obviously you program more in your application, it's going to take up more space. But with a minimal amount of stuff turned on, they're really small and portable. And then the other nice thing too, is that they're read only. And so you know that they're always going to boot up in a consistent way. So the attractiveness essentially is that we have this group of helper frameworks, we have this sort of build engine that can produce these immutable, read-only, lightweight, opt-in packages like systems that have everything that they need to run. And then you put all that together with the tooling that we have that integrates it all in the mix and works on Mac OS and Linux. And I'm pretty sure I've seen people using the Windows subsystem for Linux to actually build it on Windows. But all together, that ball gives you a really nice toolkit to work with to be able to make it easier for you to orchestrate the assembly of software that you'd want to run your embedded system. And I want to get into that, where it fits in, in your embedded systems. And before we get there, I want to expand on a couple of things you mentioned. You talked about the Pi and these other devices. You talked about BuildRoot. So the Pi is one of those, sure, you can use Elixir Ale. And as you kind of mentioned, if you're tinkering and you're just playing with something and it's not serious, do you necessarily need to do the deployment for NERVS? Or do you just take advantage of some of those UART libraries or whatever else NERVS provides for controlling pins and reading some of this stuff? So where does the build root fall in? Can you expand build root? Can you expand, I guess, when you put this into an embedded system in the real world. You mentioned Garth and how he was actually putting this stuff in. I guess let's start with what does that look like and what build root means and some of this stuff before we get into the other side of the embedded systems. But when you go from tinkering to actually having something you want to deploy, what does what does that mean for people who aren't familiar with hardware, IoT, embedded systems? Yeah, sure. So let's say you're prototyping, all right? And 
I like to use an example of creating food, like recipes. Let's cook food, right? Let's say you're cooking a meal and you're following a list of instructions, or maybe you're not. Maybe you know what the flavors are and you want to just build a recipe, right? And let's say while building this recipe, you obviously have a pantry, but let's say it's like the freedom that you get in building a recipe is like typically found in the amount of ingredients that you have available to you, right? So like you might be like, oh, I want to make this amazing like green curry, but I don't have some crucial ingredients like maybe curry, I don't know, or or you need some coconut milk or something like that. And not having those ingredients available, it hinders your ability to be able to prototype this recipe quickly. But what if you were prototyping this recipe at the grocery store? You know, you'd be really performant. You'd just be able to go into the aisle with the green curry and be like, hey, let's mix this up in the uh, in the kitchen that's probably also there for food prep. You could probably make a, like, you can certainly make a whole meal there. All right. If I were to apply this analogy to running on Raspbian versus running on like a, a product that Nerves made based off of Buildroot, in prototyping, running on Raspbian is kind of like being at the grocery store. You know, like all the drivers are there. If you plug stuff in, it'll probably just show up and start working and it'll be like fun and cool and everything's good to go. It's not going to get in your way. It's not going to slow you down. Versus if you were to prototype on top of like a produced system on Buildroot and you start plugging in hardware because you start expanding the requirements of your recipe, you're now being limited by the ingredients that you have on hand. All right. So to expand upon this a little bit more on why there's that limitation there, I guess that's the perfect reason to be able to explain what Buildroot is. And that Buildroot is this way to be able to build a Linux system and add in any additional packages that can help you create your own sort of output Linux system. For example, here's an absurdity. If you were to, let's say, I don't know, turn every option on in the world for Buildroot, you might output Raspbian. <laughs> because essentially Raspbian is Linux with all the options turned on and, and all this other stuff. And that's why it, it's so big. Because it's like being at the grocery store. But sometimes at the end of the day, you want to be able to focus the thing that you're deploying to something that's more compact, right? I mean, imagine every single time you wanted to cook some green curry, you had to do it at the grocery store. No, you're going to buy the ingredients that you need. You're going to bring them home so that you can do them in your kitchen. And I might be starting to stretch this analogy a little bit to be able to get us there. But essentially, what Buildroot offers us is like once we've figured out how to make green curry and what ingredients we need to make that green curry, we now have a list of check marks that we can enable the ingredients. And essentially, that's the config that we feed to Buildroot in a way. And then Buildroot knows how to be able to build the Linux kernel and what additional user land applications that we might need to have present to be able to satisfy the requirements for the system that's being produced. And if we stretch that analogy even further, I guess the question is, if you're prototyping it, you're in the grocery store or the experimental kitchen. Once you go build route, that's probably closer to putting it on a factory floor where you know you need to order these things. Is that meaning you're going and getting, you're still running on these Beagle Bones, Raspberry Pis, other hardware that's out there when you put it to production? Or are you going and saying, well, I need an ARM chip or I need something else and I'm going to go get this produced as a actual component and then drop this down. How do you see the nerve stuff being actually used in production once you're going back to this builder thing? Because it reminds me of the early day sales of Java when Java came out back in <laughs> the early 90s where it was like or in the mid 90s where Everything's going to run Java. You got your DVD players running Java. You got Java on your decoder ring that's going to carry your identity. <laughs> You've got all these devices, Java on your toaster, Java in your fridge. How does that work in the build root and nerve system? Or are, we, are people just saying it's production now, so I'm just doing a slimmed down version of what I'm running, but I'm still running it on a Pi or I'm still running it on a BeagleBone? Or are we going and getting some of this stuff? more componentized, putting it on a printed circuit board with the appropriate chips in that's actually a custom device. Yeah, so I mean, you, you bring up a very important point, and that is that inherently some of the options that you enable in Buildroot to produce that targeted output are going to be options that are specifically talking about hardware that is present, you know, like whether or not it's an ARM chip or what kind of ARM chip and and options that might be turned on or off in the Linux kernel would be different if you're running on Raspberry Pi 
versus BeagleBone, or even the version of Linux that's running to begin with. Ultimately, yeah, our idea, it does spawn some concepts of portability. And there's a project that uses NERV's FarmBot, and for testing purposes, they test their system across a variety of Raspberry Pi systems. And with the NERV's integration with Mix, you can do that. You can sort of specify different targets that you want to be able to output. But each individual one of those targets has a different, what we call a NERV's system underneath it, which is the product from BuildRoot. Because while they might share some commonality, there's always differences in options that need to be configured to be able to make it so that this produced system can run efficiently on a Raspberry Pi 2 versus a Raspberry Pi 3 or a Raspberry Pi 0 or a BeagleBone Black. And so, yeah, the portability comes sort of at the Elixir layer and that your code that you write inside of the VM is going to be nicely portable across those to where then you can just plug in a different subsystem to it, like a different nerve system to be able to build it on top of. But I guess that's the split in our case. And that, like with Java, they were saying it's going to run everywhere. And then anything that you run on Java can run because it'll be there. We're sort of eating all of the cake in this case. In that sales pitch, you're saying Java will be there, build it in Java, put it there. We're saying something's going to be there. <laughs> and you can scaffold your system to be able to be whatever options you want and include whatever you want. But at the end of the day, it's going to boot into Erlang, and therefore it's going to boot into this Elixir code. And Elixir and Erlang are so good at supervision that we try to strip some of the pieces back that you'd normally find in the way that Linux systems boot and replace them with the concepts that are present already with Erlang and supervision. You know, for example, one of the big things that you'll find with the philosophy on distributing using nerves is that we have a program called Erlinit that basically replaces in it so that it'll boot directly to the Erlang VM because abstractions like system D for supervising the way that things are started up and the order that they're started in, that's just the same thing basically inside the VM as the application initialization sequence and which application dependencies are started in and what order they're started in. So we saw a lot of those overlaps and we imagined what life would be like and how we wanted to ourselves build systems in a better language by removing the low-level abstractions that are present in Linux, or at least trying to be able to create comfortable representations of them inside of Erlang, we feel it makes a better deployment experience because you have more focus in a single place instead of trying to be able to connect all of these different moving parts and get them to work together. And then in that deployment, is it still we're using these generalized Raspberry Pis or BeagleBones or what Linkits Duos or whatever that's supported on the Nerves page. And we're just targeting that image for that thing. And we've got the generic Erlang Elixir software. And we just say, well, now we can reduce this from 800 megabytes down to 25. That includes the whole Linux system we need and the code. And we freed that up. Is that what people are doing? Or are they going off and now making productionized little pieces of components from what you've seen, like Garth and the like, when they're actually putting this out in the real world? Well, as it stands today with Garth, Garth has taken some great steps forward in shipping nerves on production devices to even speak to the point where he targets BeagleBone Black because it's actually an open source piece of hardware. With the BeagleBone Black, you can take the original files, you can redesign the board however you want, you can add and remove whatever components you want, and you can remanufacture it to be your own. And, you know, in that situation, you have really nice compatibility with the existing systems. So you can really deploy things that way. I mean, you can even consider the idea of the existing NERVs systems, supported, officially supported NERV systems, like Raspberry Pi 123, the Pi 0W. That's an awesome board. The Linkit Smart. Uh, you know, all of these ones that we officially support like you can even consider those a stepping stone if you wanted to as well. I mean, they're more than capable when it comes to hardware, but if you wanted to be able to mass manufacture things, you, know, you might be interested in going down the roads of like starting to use a BeagleBone Black just because you can remanufacture it. But long-term, because of building the structures of our systems on BuildRoot, you know, anything that you can do in BuildRoot, you can essentially turn into a composable nerve system that you can bring into your tooling. And BuildRoot, because of all of its options and configurability, you can really do a lot with it when it comes to supporting custom hardware. 
So, you know, no matter whether your company wants to stick with using off-the-shelf prototyping devices or off-the-shelf hardware like BeagleBones and Raspberry Pis, you can do that. Or you can even go so far as to, if you have specific requirements, you can create your own board with your own chips, with your own layouts, and you can go through the work to be able to turn on the right set of options in BuildRoot so that you can use that system in NURBS as well. And then we talked about the power of the orchestration with Erlang, the Erlang language and OTPs and everything Elixir has built on top of it. Is that orchestration where a lot of these devices are, you're putting out a field of Pi Zeros or Beagle Bones or whatever, or is there Arduinos or other embedded systems that are doing some of these smaller parts, like you talked about the accelerometer hooked up to your motorcycle? Is the thought that you're putting something smaller like an Arduino or some other component like that, that then sends that data back and you're using it as a gateway, you're putting out these devices that are full Erlang sensors and Erlang running on all of these devices and they're all coordinating as like a mesh network or is there a central thing? How is that looking from what some of that story of NERVs is primarily targeting to solve as the main first story versus where it might be going in the future? There's always going to be a need for microcontrollers, <laughs> which unfortunately, as of today, means that there's typically always going to be a need for doing some sort of C programming. But that might change. I mean, there's there's some good projects out there that are working to be able to bring higher level languages to smaller microcontrollers. So from an orchestration standpoint, I mean, we all know that Erlang is good at supervision. And if not, I say, go check it out. It's probably like some of the most intriguing pieces. So we're good at supervising processes, we're good at keeping things running, and we need microcontrollers for those hard real-time requirements. There's a difference between these devices, like an Arduino is going to run at a rate, and it's going to be able to satisfy situations like if it needed to talk protocols that had like timing constraints. Things aren't going to get in the way that you'd get on like Raspberry Pi, where you have schedulers and everybody's doing time slice sharing for the processor and you get soft real-time guarantees instead of hard real-time guarantees. And so that's what I mean like with the, the need for microcontrollers. There's certain things that are just easier to do using that realm, but it doesn't mean that you have to do everything in that realm. And so with Elixir Ale or even branching outside of that, if, if you wrote some code that'll run on a microcontroller and you just want to be able to like make sure it's still running, you can use ports inside of Erlang to be able to establish a communication channel with that outside actor in a way. And then that port, Erlang can act as the main supervisor, like it's really good at. Uh, it can sort of act as, like you said, that gateway. And it can handle keeping any number of sub-orchestrated things together. You can have gen servers that run that just do soft real-time requirements, like polling for data. At the same time that you monitor serial port connections through ports with connected devices like Arduinos. So you can really sort of mesh that all together. It's just a matter of, like I said, uh, what kind of problem you're looking to solve and what kind of requirements you have as far as you know, soft real-time requirements or hard real-time requirements. And then finding a comfortable blend between the usage of the technology so that you do all of your hard real-time stuff on the microcontroller layer, but you do all of your high-level communication and external connectivity in Erlang and Elixir. And you can be more productive and performant that way. And that was one of the things early on when I hear about embedded systems and I had heard about the Arduinos and one of the things that I was like, oh yeah, that means I can run like Erlang and Elixir on these Arduinos. And then that more I dig in, I was like, oh no, if I do, I guess it's the Fermata protocol like you hear with people running JavaScript, but it's like that thing's got to be plugged into something else. So yeah. depending on how you're deploying your sensors or your internet of things, if it's these tracking devices or whatever that you think about, like I got an internet of things for my cows or whatever at the ranch because I need to know all this different stuff, then, well, I don't want to get a thousand pies with a thousand microchips and microcontrollers as well to hook that up. So that's where I was trying to understand some of this stuff. And I think you've helped give me a bigger, a better picture of which parts become the domain of Elixir via nerves and wear nerves and the power of nerves of why do that versus just pull something up for a prototype and when the differences are and understanding build root and everything. So 
Yeah, and, and from some of those situations, you can actually, you know, you don't have to use an Arduino. Like there's some of the like the timing constraint things that you can do some lighter weight protocols. You can do them directly from Elixir A. Like you can speak to SPI devices or I square C devices. And that's why it just really it really does depend on the domain that you're trying to tackle, like the problem you're trying to solve. If that sensor is available, that it has a UART connection out of the box, then just connect it to a UART on the Pi, and you won't have those timing constraints. So when it comes to prototyping, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to skin the same problem, essentially, like to get to the root and actually solve it. And then, yeah, you, that's what I mean. You, you just have to take what you have available to you. And, and if you can keep it all together inside of Erlang, that comfy, cozy place that we like to be inside of programming an Elixir and then the better, you know. But if you can't, sometimes you just have to bite off a little bit of the outside world and just make sure you supervise it properly. And I can definitely see a point of the orchestration and managing that orchestration. As I mentioned in the pre-call, I've been getting into Arduinos a little bit with trying to do some temperature sensors around the house just to learn how that works and refresh some of the electrical engineering skills that I had in some CS labs, which have been a number of years now. But I'm sitting there, I'm like, I would not want to coordinate and figure out which sensors go when and send it back to some other stuff. I was like, MQTT, yes, I can do some MQTT and C or whatever on an Arduino. I do not want to do that. I'd rather do take advantage <laughs> of some of these Erlang Elixir libraries that handle it for me. Or if I decide I just want the complete orchestration, go ping a sensor and tell it to take a measurement. I don't want to do that in C. I've seen enough C stuff with people playing with that. The C route, I was like, I wish I could do this in Elixir. And knowing those domains is nice. But we're getting in on time. So A, what haven't we sold about Elixir that we think we should make mention to if it's reinforcing some of those domains of where it fits, getting rid of some of this misperceptions for anybody who's only heard of it at a high level, or maybe just some of the stuff you're excited about for the future, whether or not it's a year out, six months out, two years out, where you're just, here's our grand picture, and this is what we would love, and however much people can help or push this forward or whatever we're looking for, what haven't we covered that you think we should let people know about? on either of those two or anything else that we think we need to tell more about with NERVs. So I've been building embedded systems recently at Latote. We have some really interesting problems that we're trying to use NERVs to solve in, in the warehousing. And it's taught me a lot, specifically about why using Elixir for this problem is beneficial. And so Elixir makes building embedded systems really comfortable because it's really good at a couple key factors, one of which is it's really good with recursion and functional programming and pattern matching to be able to parse binary protocol streams. Like you imagine sensors and data streams coming in from devices. Using pattern matching in Elixir with recursion just makes that really comfortable. It's an enjoyable experience, finally. And another one is the supervision and making sure that things stay running. These devices are supposed to be rock solid, and most of the time they're presented without a display, and you just want to make sure that things still work. A long time ago, Wendy Smoak was building a cat feeder using nerves. And one of the, the things that she said that I thought was really funny was she told me that we basically took all the fun out of building embedded systems because she plugged it in and it works and it just stays working. And she doesn't have to continue to tinker with it. And it just keeps running. <laughs> so same thing with Garth. I mean, Garth really liked that model with nerves because if something goes wrong, you can capture these cases and you can, the fault tolerance of Elixir through Erlang having that present really makes sure that your device stays running. And so from there, it's by solving those problems and making the programming and the environment more enjoyable, the other thing to be able to just keep in mind is like outside influences and, and volatility or mutable state. Another thing that we've learned with some of the work we've been doing with Latote, we've been deploying a lot of systems that run, as we're calling them, this WebKit kiosk. And that we'll take a device that has a touchscreen display and we'll render a big Chromeless WebKit browser on it and we'll load in our remote software that runs and, and lets you interact with the device through this interface. And that the immutability of Elixir as the language, I believe, draws a lot of people towards using it to solve a lot of different problems. And if we take what we've learned from the reasons why immutability in this language is so interesting, like the reasons why it performs so well, and we apply it to the hardware that it's also running on, 
we finally can have control over all of the stack, the whole code base, like everything up to the bootloader. Since a nerve system runs read-only, that kiosk that boots up is also acting in this immutable fashion. It's running Elixir, which lets our code act in this immutable fashion. Having ownership over that full experience and removing the multi-user OS or Chrome just updating on you automatically, or like some package manager just running when it shouldn't. There's DevOps teams that are dedicated to shutting these things down when in this strategy, we just don't include them. (laughs) And so owning all of the code all the way up to the very, very first bits of code that run on that system, it's a really interesting process and a thought because it now lets us have control over the error cases that are presented in the entire runtime sequence of these devices. So that's something that I've been really considering and focused on as like a goal moving forward, something that's driven me towards with my thoughts on nerves and Elixir and the community. And it's just been a sort of a fascination of mine as a reason why I do this and to push these systems forward, not only make it easier for us to program and more enjoyable for us to program in them, but also to be able to get us to a point where we can start to really solve problems because of things being built in a reproducible known state. So moving forward, what's next for us? Well, we're working really hard to be able to try to unify a lot of the frameworks that we put out to be able to help do things like networking and Wi-Fi and getting things online. This year, written a lot of new things that we needed as part of the initialization sequence. We created an application called Bootloader for the Erlang VM that basically satisfies the initialization sequence and then lets us do all of our own initialization so we can guarantee that the node stays running. We've also worked on creating a serial nested term storage system called System Registry that we could build a lot of our applications around to be able to synchronize messaging and state specifically between the outlook of state between these subsystems that you'd have running, like networking and things like that. And we're really pushing hard to be able to get it so that The documentation is really easy to follow. We have a lot of great tutorials that you can get up and running with. And we're trying to be able to get ourselves to a point where we have some stability and can actually call ourselves 1.0 in a way. (laughs) And that's the other thing that you've touched on again in why NERS and Erlang and some of these other things for embedded systems comes down is that reliability that knowing what it is, whether or not it's introducing immutability and being able to kind of handle these failure cases and seeing all the ways that in the past I've done and broke things with be even Java or C Sharp, but especially in the C-based languages where it's like, oh yeah, forgot the pointer null, forgot this, forgot to shut this down. And being able to introduce that robustness and resilience at any level in the system and having that is nice. And That's one of those other things about, aside from the Erlang and Elixir is nice, it also removes those whole class of problems, as you said, that says, I don't have to worry about this SSH port getting in because maybe I can just now send a message and have a specific message payload that's pattern matched only on and say, go query this and have a message sent back to me instead of needing a full SSH, which opens any number of other vulnerabilities and updates. Yeah, exactly. And I guess on that topic, one thing I've also wondered about from looking at a little bit of these microcontroller stuff is with the Erlang Elixir messaging system, the potential for configuration across nodes. If you've got these 10 different sensors, but they all need to be different things, is that something that NERVS helps and do some of this dynamic registry and hookup? Because I believe... Even NERVS gives you the ability to flash certain parts of the firmware on some point. Is that accurate? Yeah. As part of the tooling and the systems that we have, there's a couple examples of this actually running. There was a tweet recently that I'm sure we can provide a link to later that was put out about Elixir deployed using NERVS onto the LEGO EV3 bricks. And so it was a LEGO project. It was four EV3s. The EV3 is the main sort of intelligent brick that the LEGO systems run. And so it was four devices, one that ran the conveyor belt. It was a conveyor belt. And then there were three robotic arms. And each robotic arm was in charge of picking up the ball for their color. And so the conveyor belt, you'd put down different colored balls. And then when it would get in front of the appropriate robot arm, that robot arm would pick it up. And it would do a 180-degree spin, and it would drop it into the container behind it. 
Now, there were, these robotic arms were close to each other, so when working together, they had to make sure that they didn't collide if they were both operating at the same time or something like that. So this was a system that was put out, and all of the devices that are part of the system were running the same firmware, but they knew what job to be able to execute based off of discovering the connected hardware that was present and some of the configuration details that were made known at that time. So these systems can be created flexibly so that you can produce the same output that can run on different targets and try to unify as much of it as possible. Another experience of this too is that Lato, like I said, that kiosk software, we actually open source the systems for that to run on Raspberry Pi 3 and on our x86 platform so that it can run on things like Dell all-in-one computers or HPs with bigger touchscreen displays. And I'm sure we can provide the links to that as well to get to those systems. But that's an example where we've built a code base around multiple different deployment systems that all sort of produce the same output, but run on a variety of different kinds of devices. And those devices, by designing the boot up sequence properly, you can sort of discover the attributes about yourself that would then present you to be able to run different parts of the firmware or operate as a different role, let's say, based off of what's present. And as we're wrapping up, call to action for people to get started. So if someone's interested in this, they've either heard about it before, they got a better picture, and they want to proceed, or they're hearing about it for the first time. What are some of the ways that you recommend people to get familiar and started with this? Is this just get the pot and make some LED blink? What's some of those steps as they do this? Is there a good place? I don't know if NERVS has a good tutorials page that you kind of aggregate a bunch of tutorials from the community as they get together. What are some of the best places for people to start learning, give feedback on their learning, share it with the community? How do people go from zero to being familiar with this and having those next steps? Is there some recommendations there or call to actions for people to actually help with that, if not? Sure. The best place to start really is blinking lights. It sounds boring, but blinking lights, as it's put, is the hello world of hardware. It's amazing the kind of feeling that you can get by just writing code that can affect physical things, even if they are just tiny little lights blinking. That's definitely the first step, is running what's called Blinky. And you can do that by trying to be able to follow through some of the documentation that we put together, which is available on Hexdocs. So that's uh, hexdocs.com forward slash nerves, and that should get you to the uh, getting started section. But you can also download a lot of our examples that we have in our example repository on our GitHub page. It's The organization is Nerve-Project, and that's the repository is Nerves-Examples. And that contains Blinky, and it also contains a number of other projects. So getting started, yeah, pick yourself up a Raspberry Pi. The Pi Zero Ws are really cool. They got built-in Wi-Fi. And with that image, you can get up and running quickly because the USB cable that powers it runs in this thing called gadget mode. It's really cool. It provides Ethernet and a serial port over the same USB cable that also powers it and connects it to your laptop. And then using that, you can get into some of the, the other features that we have, like performing firmware updates over the network by using NERVS firmware SSH. You can also check out, we're in the process of building our own hardware test farm server that actually applies firmware updates using Phoenix channels and a Phoenix application that runs on the server side. And you can get into just some of the basic stuff like networking and communicating with devices over the network and interacting with some of the pins that are on your Raspberry Pi and taking steps further to be able to start controlling devices. But from there, I found that the best thing to do is just think about something in your life that you want to try to be able to make easier, even if it just means a product that's already available, like taking a Raspberry Pi, running an application deployed using nerves to hook up the wires to your garage door button. And then, and so that way you can press the button to be able to open the garage door, but you can also from the network, you know, type in like an Elixir command through Remshell to be able to tell it to open the garage door. You know, so like, don't be afraid to do things that have already been done just for the experience of knowing how to be able to get those things kind of accomplished. And then just chip away at bigger and bigger projects until you just think of stuff that you want to be able to build to automate the things around you. And then as people get to some of these things, like the garage example that you mentioned, or some of these other things, past the blinky, which you have there, what's the best way for them to share and feedback and help share that across the community and give people other ideas or other tutorials to go along 
so they can say, well, now I know how to do the garage door because someone else has done it and start to live on that documentation. What's the best place to share some of these details, help publicize this? I know some organizations like a centralized repo, some are just put it on your blog, wherever. Is there good places for this in the nurse community that you'd like people to share these around? Well, if you're interested in getting some feedback or immediate feedback or help, we're usually pretty active on the NERVS channel on Elixir Lang Slack, but things usually roll off there pretty quickly. So for sharing longer term things, there's a lot of people that write blog posts about it, and we try to be able to collect as many of those as possible, as well as community libraries and support. We put some of that stuff on the nerves-project.org site. But more recently, because of the information rolling off of Slack, we've sort of been getting more involved in the Elixir forum site. And one way that I'm interested in trying to be able to expand some of this stuff too is if you go through and you do the garage door example, or you go through and you do like, I'm collecting temperature data or any of anything, even if it feels or seems trivial, it would be great to be able to write that up and share your experience with others, either through Elixir forum or by writing your own blog post and sharing it with other people through those other avenues as like a weekend project so that others can follow your steps and continue to learn from things as well. And that sounds like a great call to action because I know documentation is always one of those things that's tricky to find and locate. So I wanted to make sure we, we could help people find that in the right place or people coming, starting to know, would know where to look past Blinky and everything else. So we're going on time. I know you've been busy. You've had a bunch of conferences this year. You've got some more stuff coming up. What were some of the places people can look for more details from you in the recent past? And I know you're going to be at ElixirConf. So can you give some details about where you were, where you've been, what you've talked about, and we can direct some of the people to some of those videos and recordings to look for for more information from you? In the recent past, there's been some more general overviews, but technical information I believe Erlang Factory, San Francisco, we talked about higher level outlook on what NERVS is that you can gain more information from. It also shows a little bit more about how NERVS is used in production by having some people talk about it, especially Connor from FarmBot. It's a company that uses NERVS in production as well. And from there, you can also check out the Erlang User Conference. I was there this year giving a talk regarding the ways that designing software sort of have this shared experience with our lives and when it, how it comes to dependency and, and how nerves sort of fits into this mold of being able to be use it to create recipes. You can check that one out for sort of a more philosophical approach on what nerves is. And coming up, we'll be talking at ElixirConf in Bellevue in September. Frank will be doing a training. Frank Hunleth will be doing the, the nerves there where I believe we're going to be using some Raspberry Pi Zeros with the camera to be able to do some really cool stuff with video and building devices using nerves to be able to control cameras and video streams and also interact with some sensors and things like that. I think that class is sold out now at this point. <laughs> but definitely if you're at ElixirConf, come and check us out and you can talk to us about that that kind of the hardware we used and if you have questions. But I'll also be giving a talk there regarding the state of where we're at with things. And as I said throughout this, with all the work that we've been doing on implementing using NERVS with Latote and all of the people that have been coming together to be able to push forward our code bases and, and really drive towards shaking the bugs out of the system, we're hoping that we're going to land in a, in a really comfortable place to be able to have some really cool stuff to be able to show everybody and some temper in, in Bellevue. And then where are the best places for people to find you and more details on the Nerve Project. We've kind of talked about the Nerve Project homepage. Uh, we mentioned the Nerves channel and the Elixir Slack. You mentioned Elixir Forum. Are there any other places that we need to call out for Nerves? And then where can people find you and follow along with your updates on a personal level? I'm really not as active as I ever should be on Twitter. <laughs> the best place if you want to be able to catch up with what I'm up to is to just hit me up on Slack on Elixir Lang. I'm there most of the time. But yeah, those are the general avenues that you can find information out about the project. Nerf-project.org stays pretty up to date with all of those other avenues as well. And yeah, just to get involved with the community, you know, any means possible. Just reach out to us and tell us what you're up to. And we all kind of like work together to be able to see what kind of cool problems we can solve. 
And then any personal blog where you put some of these updates out or Latote where there's some sharing of some of the stuff that you're doing or not? Well, Latote's GitHub account it does have the open source project contribute back. You'll find a couple different ones there that we have for NERVs, two different systems, and also this hardware abstraction layer we've sort of been like working through. It's github.com forward slash Latote team to be able to check out more of the open source work from what we're doing there. But as far as a personal blog, yes, you can find me at, I believe it might still be at mobileoverlord.com. I think it's a GitHub site that is tastefully out of date. I usually kind of find it funny that when you find people who are busy with a million different things, if you find their personal blog, you can tell a lot about a person by how long ago their last post actually was. So the little construction worker is up at the top of your mobile overlord site then. So Oh, is that yeah. It's, it's, it's that old. You got the got the little site counter on it as well of how many people have visited. Yeah, yeah. Page views of number of people that have actually tried to visit there. And I'm sure half the audience will not get the reference to some of those old pages and old designs. <laughs> so yeah. Is there anything else that we haven't mentioned that we want to plug? We've talked about a lot. Is there any other last plugs that you want to make mention to before we let you go? You know, I just want to thank everybody in the community, the uh, the people that I work with on a day-to-day basis and the people that are part of the Elixir and Erlang community have been just wonderful individuals. We all have a lot of experience that we contribute towards things that we've worked on. Whether or not they relate, they sort of always find some sort of something that'll overlap and just the means of the open lines of communication that we all have together working on open source software has been uh, quite an enjoyable experience. And so far, yeah, it's just been able, everybody's been able to grow and learn from everybody else. It's been quite a joy to be able to go through this with everybody else in the community. Well, thank you for taking your time to join me today. I know we've gotten a little bit over our time, but it's been enjoyable. You've given me a better picture of NERVs. I'll put all the links in the show notes and people can go find out more for you, Nurse Projects, Latote's up to everything we've covered so they can come back and find there. But thanks for giving me a better picture of where Nerves is falling and what part is meant for Nerves and what part is meant for microcontrollers and where things are going. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It's a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Welch for the logo, and thank you, Justin. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.